Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we now turn to the proclaiming of your word, we've sung your praises, Lord. We've prayed your praises. Um, And Lord, now as we come to the portion of our service, which you've commanded that it would be heralded and proclaimed, announced as good news, Lord, I pray you'd bless this time, Lord, that, um, that your authority would be known and that we would delight in it. Lord, that we would submit to your words the way that sheep would respond to a good shepherd who has laid down his life for them. I pray that you do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 27. 1 Chronicles 27. Now we've come ever closer to the end of the reign of David. David's reign over Israel is coming to a close. And we're now at the completion of the first Messiah of Israel to reign on a permanent throne. So we've seen in the last number of chapters that that David is actually organizing. He's providing men for the tasks which were for the authority and and leadership of the people of God. So it's for the, the glory of God and the good of God's people. He's establishing and he's setting apart these people, organizing them to lead authority and leadership. And it's part of David's responsibilities as the head of God's people as their little M Messiah. And so we've looked at at things like musicians and guards for the temple and priests and Levites and all these things that we can clearly see there is a spiritual portion to this. This makes sense. This looks like spiritual leadership. This is a good gift. This is something God would care about. But now, today we're turning, if we go to chapter 27, We're now looking at things that you might think matter less to God because they seem very unspiritual. And so why would God care about these things? Or why would the writers of Scripture? Because David's setting up and organizing civil government leaders, judges, chiefs, military leaders, even treasurers. And so we're going to look today at this and how this is part of David's responsibility because it's part of God's good design for the blessing of his people. So we're actually going to back up, we're going to, we're, we're going to take a, a running start at chapter 27, we're going to look at 26, the end of 26, because these things overlap a little bit, these kinds of leadership. We're not going to read the in, entire passage today, because we're going to spend most of our time in other passages of Scripture to help us understand this. So we're going to go to 26, verse 29, 26, 29, of the Israelites, Chenaniah and his sons were appointed to external duties for Israel as officers and judges. King David appointed him and his brothers 20, or sorry, verse, now go to 32. King David appointed him and his brothers, 2,700 men of ability, heads of fathers' houses, to have the oversight of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of of the Manassites for everything pertaining to God and for the affairs of the king. This is the number of the people of Israel, the heads of fathers' houses, the commanders of thousands and hundreds, and their officers who served the king in all matters concerning the divisions that came and went, month after month throughout the year, each division numbering 24,000. Pause there, jump to 2725. 27 verse 25. We're just getting a glimpse of all the the leadership uh, structures that he puts in place. Over the king's treasuries was Asmapheth, the son of Adiel, and over the treasuries in the country, the, in the cities and the villages and in the towers was Jonathan, the son of Uzziah, and over those who did the work of the field for tilling the soil was Ezri, son, the son of Chelub, and over the vineyards was Shimei the Ramathite, and over the produce was, of the vineyards for the wine cellars was Zabdi, the Shipmite. Over the olive and sycamore trees was Shephelah and Baal-Hanan, the Gedarite, and over the stores of oil was Joash. Over the herds that pastured in the Sharon was Shitri, the Sharonite. Over the herds of the valleys was Shaphath, the son of Adlai. Over the camels was Ebil, the Ishmaelite. And over the donkeys was Jadiah, the Maranathite. Over the flocks was Jazes, the Hagrite. And all of these were stewards of King David's property. Jonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor, being a man of understanding and a scribe. He and Jael, the son of 
hack money attended the king's sons. Ahithophel was the king's counselor, and Hushai the archite was the king's friend. Ahithophel was succeeded by Jehoiada, the son of Benaiah and Abiathar. Joab was the commander of the king's army. I'm going to stop there. So the chronicler's purpose in listing these officers and leaders, remembering the first people who would have heard this account, would have been the returned exiles, right? They have been in exile for 70 years. They're coming back. And now they're getting this history to shape them and form them. And one of them is to give them courage and dignity based on the fact that of what God had once made them. There were a large number of leaders and fighting men. They were not a ragtag group of, of unsophisticated, unorganized people. They were once a people with a sophisticated and effective government and military, chiefs of tribes, judges, people with authority over the crown's finances. And so the returned exiles are being reminded that all the leadership and might and, and the tribes were there actually to be united under the heir of King David. This was the goal. They were to long for and give themselves all authorities that had been divided amongst the people to give themselves in service to the Davidic Messiah, longing for God to bring Israel glory and mercy and prosperity and peace and joy under the son of David again, where all the leadership in, that God has established in that kingdom would glorify the son, a God through the son of David. Now, we looked at previous weeks at the other works of organization that David did and saying, why is this a good thing? He sets up the temple. He sets up the Levites. And now we're, we're going to do the same thing here. We're going to actually leave First Chronicles and sort of understand this gift of government so that we can appreciate what David had done because it might not be clear to us. The world may have clouded us and, and given us a different view so we can't appreciate why this was a good thing that David did. Not only that, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills David's reign. So this is going to give us a better understanding of the Messiahship of Jesus and why he is sweet and good and why we can rejoice that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our first point is that authority is part of God's design to demonstrate and enjoy his character. Authority is part of God's design to demonstrate and enjoy his character. It's, it's not the ideal that no, neater, no, no leadership is needed or given. We might think that, oh, best case scenario would be that no leadership is needed or given. But that was never part of God's desire or his design. Right in the book of Genesis, you see that God created the world with authority and dominion and leadership and submission built right in. He doesn't apologize for it. He says it is very good. Adam and Eve were to exercise authority over all the world. Adam was given authority as husband to lead and protect and defend and love and care for his wife Eve. It was part of God's very good creation. Ruling or being ruled is not automatically a bad thing. It can be very glorious. It is God's good design. And we know that all creation was created for for the glory of God, for the glory of God, but not just the glory of God, the enjoyment of his glory, that, that we would see his glory, we would understand it, and that we would delight in him as the one who is worthy of that delight, to put on display his character, to put on display his attributes, and then just feast on those things by worshiping him and loving being his subjects. Now, God is often called a king in Scripture. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be good if God designed the world in such a way that we'd have kings so we'd know what it means for him to be king? This is how God has, has designed his creation because he's the one with authority. He's the one who commands things. He's the one who takes responsibility for the righteousness and order of all that exists. It's his responsibility. He is the king. And so all leadership and authority that he has designed is intentionally there to display his character and glory. To take responsibility for the flourishing and good of people underneath your authority. 
This explains why he made authority at all, for his own glory and for our enjoyment of it, that we would understand it. That brings us to our second point, and that is God divided human authority into different institutions. God divided human authority into different institutions. And so not only was the idea of authority something that was created by God, the legitimate kinds of authority are also instituted by God. So we're not free to invent authority and then force the Bible, force people using the Bible to say, now you have to submit. No, God designs authority. And then we understand from Scripture, what does it mean to submit to that authority? So he divided human authority into different institutions. He separated it into different institutions. Now, each of these institutions, we're going to go through them, the ones that are clearly articulated in Scripture, we're going to go through them, and each of them, they image God's rule and care and character in a unique way. Each of them does that. And not one of these institutions of human authority could fully comprehend and display the kind of ruler and authority that the Lord our God is. We see this in, in Romans 13. If you've got your Bibles, a good, a good place to put your fingers would be Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. So Romans chapter 13. We're just, I'm trying to demonstrate that, that God has divided human authority into different institutions. He's instituted these things. And so we're just going to read the first verse for now. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Listen, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So note here that civil government is an authority instituted by God, but that there is, that it's only one kind of human authority. There's more. What are they? Well, 1 Peter 2, if you've got your Bibles, turn there, 1 Peter 2. A very similar passage, it gives us just a little bit more. 1 Peter 2, 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And so Peter reminds the church that they ought to submit to the government because it's not merely the government's idea or their idea. This is God's idea. But, Paul, but Peter's going to continue and mention a bunch of other human institutions. And I don't mean like human as in like ungodly, but institutions of human authority that God has designed. So Peter's going to just roll through them. And so we're going to do that a little bit with him. First Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at the institution of marriage. It has authority and submission instituted by God. First Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear what is for anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands. Live, in, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we see here that God has instituted marriage. It's in this line of human institutions that Peter's going to draw our attention to. And within the marriage, even before the fall, was a complementary design of leadership and protection and submission and support. Many husbands are going to sin against God and against their wives by abusing that authority and using it for their own good rather than for the glory of God and the holiness of the family and the good of their wives. But it's also true that many husbands will sin against God and their wives by abdicating authority, which was not theirs to abdicate. They do not have authority to give up that authority and leadership. So they're they're going to sin by refusing to take responsibility for the flourishing and holiness of their wives and families, refusing to lead. And God does not apologize 
for this design, but rather he explains that this was to show the sweetness of the relationship between Christ and the church. Read Ephesians 5 for more of that. To show the intimate love and care and leadership which Christ has for the covenant bride which the Father gave to him. A husband's leadership is to glorify the self-sacrificing leadership of Christ for the church. And I want you to pay attention to this right now. Christ would never refuse to lead the church. And he would laugh at you if you suggested that loving her meant you couldn't lead or exercise wise authority. That would be disgusting for him to hear. Loving her means I don't lead and exercise wise authority. Next institution, we're going to see this, is the family. It's tied very, very closely to marriage, parents and children. Inseparably, you might say, is the institution of the family. For this, we're going to turn to Malachi chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but uh, I'm just going to read one verse there, and we'll go back to, uh, to uh, the New Testament. Malachi 2.15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union, talking about husbands and wives? And what was the one God seeking in instituting marriage? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to your, the wife of your youth. So here we see that God instituted marriage for the purpose of creating families. Not merely creating children, but creating families. Not just multiplying amounts of people, but multiplying in the form of nuclear families. Dad, mom, and the children under their leadership, charge, and authority. So the submission of children to both parents is something which is expected and clear. We turn to Ephesians 6 to see how this is actually encapsulated or incorporated in both Old and New Testament. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Submission and authority. You see that? Honor mother and father. There's an expectation to exercise that authority to train them and disciple those children into a God-fearing family. Children are not just products of society. They are the charge of dad and mom. Parenting, the family with its care and affection and authority and provision and submission is meant to be a living parable, honoring the Lord for his fatherhood of the people of God, the redeemed people, the forgiven enemies who he has brought into his family as his children. That is... So God has instituted the authority of fathers and mothers over children. Church. God has also instituted the church with leadership and authority and accountability and responsibility. We saw this in great detail in our, in our uh, walk through scripture in the fall, talking about the design of the church. But we're going to go back to Peter. Remember, he's listing institutions of authority. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll see this. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Go to Hebrews 13. We'll see a little bit more of this. Hebrews 13, 17. He gives a similar charge to the church. 17, obey 
your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we see that the leadership in the church, submission and authority, is, is meant to benefit, it's meant to be an advantage to the people of God. It's meant to be an advantage, a blessing, that there are men set aside to take the responsibility for the care and discipline and joy and holiness of the people in their charge. So shepherds will stand before the chief shepherd to give an account for each and every one of the dear sheep entrusted to their care. Christ will ask what they did to ensure that this particular dear one knew the fullness of his love for them. And he will ask what those elders did to warn and save them from believing the lies of false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. This is meant to be a benefit to the church. And leaders are forbidden from abdicating simply because it's unpopular or because the church culture would love for something different. Elders and pastors of the church are required to exercise authority, but not just any authority. The authority articulated in the Bible, and the church is required by God to submit to this shepherding leadership. This, of course, is designed to know and enjoy and to pay homage to the Lord's own shepherding of the sheep, his covenant people. We can look again here at another institution, labor and stewardship, labor and stewardship. When a business or household or industry requires or desires the benefit of multiple people, you quickly find yourself in need of leadership and submission. So a man who owns a company but would like the benefit of labor or expertise or collaboration, he can bring others into his business. Those brought in, if they're not the owner of the business, they are to respect the fact that they're working on a business that's not theirs. They're working with resources that are not theirs. So godliness requires that rebellious attitudes and behaviors do not taint labor. We see this in many passages, but if we go to Titus 2, 9 through 10... Bond servants are, be to, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this, this authority of the workplace of, of labor and, and, um, and bosses is not something that was cooked up by men. God designed this. It was his intention. Now, it is true that there are wicked forms of labor and authority. There is absolutely truth in that. Absolutely there is. And those involved in them need to, be, to repent because they will answer to the Lord God who is a just judge and who sees all the tears that are shed by people who are oppressed. But it is also true that you probably have known somebody who has rejoiced, if not yourself, who has rejoiced in the gift of working for a fantastic boss. You know this. It is a glorious thing to have a boss who will take responsibility for the failings of a project, even if it wasn't his or her own fault. You know this is true. It's also true that there are terrible bosses. It's true that there are terrible workers and delightful employees. This is an institution, though, created by God for his glory and our understanding of his own character because the Lord is our master and we are his servants. Now we come to civil government, the specific institution of authority which we began looking at while David is setting up the kingdom for Solomon to reign over, right? Judges and chiefs and military leaders and treasurers over the crown's treasury. So we're going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to, we're going to read this in, in uh, verse 13 to 17. Read a, a little bit more here, because now we're going to focus on this question specifically. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Stop there. Clearly, God instituted civil government. And now in Peter's day, that came with a wicked emperor and governors under his leadership. But since the civil government is actually instituted by God, Peter and the rest of the Christians were to honor God by honoring the emperor and the institution of government. Now, civil government comes in all different kinds of forms, doesn't it? If you've taken any classes in in middle school all the way through university, you know this. There's various different kinds of forms of government. Lots of things have been experimented with. This is the best. Oh, that was a terrible idea. This is the best. Oh, that was a terrible idea. Some of them are better. Some of them are worse. Democracy wasn't something that Peter's contemporaries had never heard of. They've heard of it. It's just something they were not experiencing at the time. And the question was also not whether or not the Christians agreed with the government. And no matter what your stance on morality is, Christian or not, it would be hard to make the case that the Caesars were moral men. Right? So the question isn't whether they are good, whether they are wicked. The question is, are they legitimate authority set up? This is not a curse to have a civil government. David organizing all these officials was not a punishment for Israel. It was a blessing to them. And since we took a look at the purpose and benefit of the other institutions of authority, we're going to do the same for the civil government. So specifically in in our passages, we can see in 1 Peter, law, order, and peace. Law, order, and peace. Okay? Law, order, and peace. Punish those who do evil. Praise those who do good. This is also seen in, in, in 1 Chronicles where David sets up judges and military leaders, right? Law, order, and peace. If we go to Romans 13, we've already read verse 1. Let's, let's give a little more context. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to, governing, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who, has, who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you, are also, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Stop there. So the civil government has the responsibility to ensure law, order, and peace. Scripture is clear about what this looks like. They're to make sure that the the country can operate under peace and security. This explains the judges, it explains the military leaders, threats within, threats of injustice within the country, threats of injustice from outside of the country. It seems also here, and there's this, this idea of taxes is mentioned, right? It seems also that they have a responsibility over the shared resources of the country. The shared resources. So, of course, law, order, and peace, but then also shared resources. Now, every single country, no matter what form of government you have, communist, monarchy, democracy, representative government, republic, will have some shared resources. 
And there's lots of good discussion about how much should be shared and how much shouldn't. It's true. You have to have them. You think of some good examples of this? Roads, courts, police. So country to country and government to government, different points in history are going to look at that question differently. And scripture will inform you what is the wisest and a less wise form of government. That's for sure. But even looking at our passage here that talks about taxes and revenue, and First Chronicles, we see that the king has authority and also a large treasury to carry out that authority. He would engage in large projects, hopefully for the benefit of the entire country. And he had the resources to do this. He'd exercise authority over that. If you remember, Samuel warned the people about this. If you have a king, he's going to take your stuff and do things with it that he sees fit. Now, he can do that wisely, or he could do that wickedly. We see this. The king's treasuries that we read about in 1 Chronicles 27, we said treasuries of donkeys, olive trees, king's armies, right? There's this shared resources. Who has authority over the shared resources of the country? Well, probably the form of government would have something to do with that. It's not anarchy, just because we have all resources that we need to, to share. Now, this automatically means that there's a sweeping and broad sense to the government's authority because everybody else exercising their authority is going to use, necessarily use some of those shared resources. As a father, you're going to need roads, which don't belong to you. You're going to rely on the peace created by the police and the judges and the military. So you, you see that there is automatically now some sweeping and broad authority that comes with this. The question then is, is it total? Is this a total authority? If you put total together with a form of government, you get totalitarianism. Is this a total authority that God has given the government? It might appear that. So then are we to obey everything that the civil government commands? Well, probably we'd agree, no, not everything. How then do we decide which commands to keep and which ones are not under their God-given authority to command? The first thing we need to see here is that it is not a chain of command. It's not a mere linear chain of command. God didn't set up authority in a single line. A straight line of authority. It's not like civil government's at the top, then church, then family. It's not how it works. The question is not who outranks whom, but to whom has the Lord given authority for a certain matter? I'll put it differently, especially now that we know the Lordship of Christ, we'll put it differently. Who will the Lord blame or hold responsible for this decision? The church doesn't outrank the government. The government doesn't outrank the church. The church does not outrank a father. The father does not outrank the church or the government. God is always the ranking authority in every question. The question is, with whom has God vested the authority for that particular decision and that particular situation? That brings us to our third point. Human hearts will be prone to deny God's design for authority. Human hearts will be prone to deny God's design for authority. And I hope we've been able to demonstrate that the question of obeying the government is not as simple simple as we tend to make it on either side. There are different institutions of authority from the Lord. So to simply say, God submits to the government, isn't a mic drop because God also says, submit to church leaders. He also insists that fathers lead their families. And and God will condemn a man who lets the government act as his children's father. God will not allow a father to permit the government to act as his children's father. Even, Even though God's design of creation authority is for human flourishing and joy, the human heart will be prone to reject his design for fear or selfishness or many other reasons. Now, the first way that we reject God's design for leadership and blessing is that we abuse authority. It's possible to 
actually uphold God's design for authority and abuse it. It's actually possible to abuse authority that's legitimately yours. There are decisions that are the government's to make, that are within their authority, yet are sinful and harmful decisions to make. The government, as we've already read, has, a, has the authority to demand taxes. Now, they could harm their citizens by demanding too much taxes, but it is their decision to make. So you can abuse authority that's actually yours to abuse. So Christians are going to be submitting to any form of government that has been established. So a Christian can submit to an emperor. We've already seen that. Try to get worse than Nero. I dare you. Try to come up with a government worse than Nero. Christians submit to an emperor or a monarch or a communist government, socialist government, democratic government. Christians submit to even evil governments in all the things that are under their God-given authority. So this brings us to the second way. So there's abuse, but then the second way is abdication or overreach. Abdication means not exercising authority that is yours, and overreach is trying to exercise authority that's not yours. These are two ways that we are prone to sin against God's design. Godly submission to another authority never means that you allow them to make a decision which the, Lord's de the Lord demands you make. A very common way that we reject God's design for authority is when we have been given the responsibility to lead from God, and yet we don't want the pressure of this, or we don't want to be blamed for a decision that are ours to make. So we wash our hands and let another person make the decision which God demands that we make. Now, you could hardly find a better example or worse example than Pontius Pilate. He was the ranking civil authority who had the authority over capital punishment. And the religious leaders brought him there, brought Jesus there, accusing him of a crime. Pilate investigates. Pilate realizes this man is innocent. What's Pilate to do? Pilate submits to the chief priests out of fear of the mob. Wicked abdication. That's an example where the state should not have submitted to the church. If you can call them the church, the religious leaders. You're not permitted to abdicate a decision that God demands that you make and you stand, to him, stand before him for, to account for that. So the government can't replace the church. The church can't replace the government. The government, the family, the family, the government. Now we can come up with all kinds of real life examples of this kind of abdication. There are times when the church overreaches its authority and acts like the father or husband of a family. Demanding things that are really the husband and father and mother's decision to organize in their own family. Do not submit to that. We went through the regulative principle, which is this, this uh, theological principle about what a church is to do in the fall. And this is actually part of this. This is restricting leaders. There are decisions that you are not allowed to make as a pastor. There's things that you're not allowed to ask your people to do, even if they are willing to follow. You're not permitted. You are restricted by the institution and design of the leadership that God has given. Now, this calls for a lot of wisdom. Because every single one of these institutions overlaps with others. Isn't that right? A pastor is also a citizen. A godly father is also going to be a member of a church. A godly politician is also going to be a member of the church. So nobody can say, I don't have to submit to the government because I'm a father or a Christian or a pastor. So this does take wisdom. But before God, each authority must wrestle with their own consciences and scripture and be sure that they are not allowing another authority to make a decision which God commands them to make. Now, I want to take this typical obey the government unless they command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. I want to take that out for a test drive with you. I, I'm going to show that this is, is woefully inadequate. I'm going to prove this to you. First example. 
how many children a married couple has is between them and the Lord. Doesn't mean there's no wrong decisions, but the decision is theirs to make. So they could sin against the Lord, or they could honor the Lord in that question. Now, the church can tell them what, what God says on the matter, but the husband and wife are bound by conscience and Scripture to only do what they believe Scripture calls them to do in that question. Same thing is true with the government. The government can't decide how many children you have. Whether they make a good decision on that or a bad decision is irrelevant. It's not their decision to make. They will not stand before God for that question. Husbands and wives will. Second, let's say the government tells the church that it must sing eight songs each Sunday. Okay, let's see that. They, they say you must sing eight songs each Sunday. Let's take that whole that equation out for a test drive here. Is there a verse in Scripture that says you may not sing eight, verses, eight songs on Sunday? There isn't. Oh, well, then we have to obey the government. Do you see how this quickly falls apart? The question is not whether it's a bad rule or a good rule. Is it their rule to make? Has God vested them with that authority? So complying with that order would be abdicating. In Denmark, there is a law that's on its way to being passed that would require all religious leaders, if they're preaching in a different language other than Danish, to submit the sermon in a translated form to the government before they preach it. Let's take this whole equation out for a test drive. Is there a verse in Scripture that says you may not share your sermon before you preach it? Well, there isn't. Well, then we must do it. No. It would be recognizing authority that's not theirs. Do you see how this is woefully inadequate? Now, this brings us <laughs> to the matter at hand, which has brought a lot of consternation and conflict in this year. What about orders relating to churches in pandemics? First, we have to realize that the decision to shut down church services temporarily or otherwise is not one that the government has the authority to make. That authority belongs to Jesus, and he has given that authority to the local church with its elders and pastors. And Christ himself in Scripture determined that there are exceptions to gathering with the church. And those exceptions do include plague and diseases. It's not that simple because the conversation's not done yet. Because we realize that the government can have a role in caring for public safety in terms of plagues and quarantining. So the government and its authority can have a role to play in this decision. It, depending on, it depends on lots of things, but it does depend, including the form of government choose, chosen by that authority and the kinds of shared resources that they've agreed to share. But the government does not have the authority to tell the church that their command fits within Scripture. It's a conflict of interest. Oh, yes, my command fits within Scripture. It's not their authority to determine if it does. That authority rests with the local church. The elders of a local church are going to stand before God to answer that question of whether or not this particular command fit within the bounds of the limits given in Scripture. And so there are some churches who have just let the decision be made by the government altogether. It's completely theirs. We're not even thinking about this as our decision. It's the government's decision. And then there are, on the other hand, church leaders who have, some of them who have refused to obey every single pandemic order, and, and some of them not because they have thoughtfully uh, cared about this and thought through it, but they are submitting to a famous pastor who has made that decision. And so they're just doing what he says. He says, don't do it. Well, then I'm going to. You see that that's also abdication. That man is not going to answer for your congregation or your obedience or disobedience to that law. You are. You cannot let another pastor or the government ultimately make that decision. You're to search scripture and see, does this fit within the boundaries of what God says is an exception to having church? So it calls for much wisdom. And each local church is going to have to make this decision with fear and trembling before the Lord, knowing that it's him they will answer to. 
And they cannot blame that decision on anyone else. They won't be able to blame the decision on the government. They won't be able to, dis- to blame the decision on their neighbors. They won't be able to blame the decision on another famous pastor. It's theirs, and they will stand before God. So I hope we can see here that Scripture does not permit us to use that simplistic question. <laughs> yes, we're going to ask if the government or church or husband or parent commands something that God forbids or forbids something that God commands. Absolutely. That is where we start. But we also have to ask, based on God's design, is someone making a decision which God demands that I make? Is my pastor trying to make a decision that's not his to make, but demands I make, God demands I make? Is following this command going to cause me to abdicate authority which he has given to me? Are there commands in Scripture which I cannot keep if I follow this command from the government or from my pastor or from my parents or from your husband? This is true of all commands that you receive from all authorities in your life. Father, mother, husband, boss, pastor, police, prime minister. It's not merely a simple chain of command going in a straight line. Rather than asking who the ranking authority is on the decision, ask this. To whom has God given the authority for this decision? Which leader will have to stand like Christ will stand before God as the ruler of the universe? Which leader will have to stand before God for this decision? So taking responsibility for a group of people, having authority to do so is something that is precious and glorious in God's sight. It magnifies his character and his wisdom. It reminds God of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. Standing to take the blame for an unpopular decision you make for people whom God has entrusted for your care, it is a beautiful thing to do. God loves each of the institutions of authority and care which he has made each with its own purpose, each with its own unique way of honoring the wise, affectionate, and good lordship of Christ. And this has always led to the people of God longing for someone to be vested with all authority who would be perfect and wise and good. Brother George read for us Matthew 28. All authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Philippians 2 that it was given to him after he demonstrated his great worth. And how did he do that? By taking on the form of a servant, making himself nothing, and dying on the cross, being damned for his people, those entrusted to his care. That's the man with all power and authority. That's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the pastor of pastors, the father of the church and of all fatherhoods. In Ephesians, Paul says that as well. And that is our fourth point. Christ, the final Davidic Messiah, fulfills the responsibilities of every institution. You need every single one of these institutions to understand, to grasp the lordship, the reign, the rule, the authority, and the affection of Christ in the gospel. You miss any of these and you won't get the gospel. And we see that he fulfilled his charge from the Father to take this enemy bride, to stand in her place for her sins, and then to rule over absolutely every speck of that universe for God's glory and for her eternal joy. Who is worthy to be that king? Who would we want his character and his and his, uh, his, his holiness, who would we want to, his, his character to be, uh, to be magnified to the millionth and infinite degree? Only Christ is worthy of that. And so, in every bit of authority that God has vested in you, whether that be a husband or a father or a boss or an elder or a police officer, or somebody in the military, or somebody in the government, you can use that to give some little piece of glory as you try to image 
the affection and the authority and responsibility that, that Christ does in, in all of those roles. And it's true that even as we submit, we are also giving glory to God, and we are longing. We can, we can enjoy leaders who reflect the character of Christ. And it's true, very often, we will be grieved when they don't. But even that is a cause for worship because it makes us think of the one who will ultimately fulfill that institution. Christ is our Lord. He is the master of the servants. He is the father of the household. He is the bridegroom of the church. And he is also the chief shepherd. It is no accident that Satan's temptation of Christ when he came was to get him to abdicate his responsibility for the church. I'll give you all authority, he said to Jesus. Just take it without taking responsibility for the church. And hallelujah, Christ refused. As the church's authority, he bore our sins as if we were his own flesh, as his wife. He reigns over all things for our good. He laid down his life for his sheep as their good shepherd. He justly and graciously judges his servants. He cares for and leads his citizens as their king. He is the savior, the bridegroom, the shepherd, the father, the king of the church. Of all those who used to be enemies, but have trusted in the gospel that he died for their sins and that he rose from the dead. Now, Christ's reign is something we can celebrate. But as we say over and over again, whether you will be crushed by his reign when he returns or be exalted by it depends on whether you have come to him by faith, repented of your sin, rejoiced that he is Lord, and trusted that his death and resurrection has paid for your sin and reconciled you to God, no longer as an enemy, but as a dearly, beloved child. So church, let us glorify God in the way we approach authority and submission. He alone is worthy of ultimate authority. Only all authority has been given to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ is Lord. It is our great joy and confession to say that Christ is Lord. The one who died for the church is Lord of the universe. And Lord, we would have no one else be Lord, not even ourselves. That is our great confession, that it would be much better to have every area, every second of our life ruled completely by Christ than to have ourselves reign. Lord, we reject thee with Christ's help. Lord, we reject the devil's temptation that we would try to be equal with God. Lord, there's no way we would want that now that we know the gospel. We are grateful that we are not Lord, but that Christ is. So Lord, I pray that we would glorify you in how we exercise authority and how we submit to it, knowing that all of this gives glory to the Lordship of Christ, who is alone worthy of all authority in heaven and earth. And Lord, we look forward to the day when he returns and his reign over all things will be made visible and all people who are fighting against it will be, uh, that all rebellion will be ended. Lord, haste that day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.